On this episode of Progressive Polarity, the group talks to Brian Heaton and James Beach, authors of Building an Empire, the story of Queensryche. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory, as we welcome two of the authors of Building an Empire, the Story of Queensryche, Brian Heaton and James Beach. So, gentlemen, welcome tonight. Tonight we are very, very pleased to uh, welcome uh, two new friends of the Palaver, uh, two of the authors of Building an Empire, the story of Queensryche. We have Brian Heaton and James Beach. So, James Beach is the former publisher and editor-in-chief of Dark Discoveries magazine and has also edited numerous books in the horror field over the years. He's the co-author of Rusted Metal, a reference guide to heavy metal and hard rock in the Pacific Northwest. 1970 to 1995, along with Brian Naren, James Sutton, and James Tolan, as well as the co-owner of Northwest Metalworks Music and Books. With his partner and longtime friend, Brian Naren, they have released eight albums since 2015, with two more currently in production, all Northwest hard rock and metal bands from the past. Their latest book is Building an Empire, the Story of Queensryche, James was born and raised in Portland, Oregon, um, and currently resides in Longview, Washington, with his wife and kids. And, and his partner in crime, Brian J. Heaton, got his start as a journalist in 1999 when he covered sports, fitness, and music for various media outlets. Since earning his Juris Doctor degree in the early 2000s, he has worked in political communications, wrote extensively in the fields of technology and law, and was the chief editor of a prominent legal association. A Queensryche fan since the late 1980s, Brian's favorite Queensryche songs include Anybody Listening, NM156, Screaming in Digital, and Damage. And his favorite record by the band is, of course, Operation Mindcrime. A proud native of Long Island, New York, he now resides in Northern California with his wife and daughter. So, Brian and James, welcome to the Palaver. Glad to have you here. This is exciting stuff. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Excellent. And you have a third author who did not join us, uh, Brian Naren. Uh, we want to give him credit. So there, it's, it's actually a three-author book, correct? Yes. In the beginning, you all have two pages to detail your favorite Queensryche experiences. I was wondering if to start off, you could just maybe summarize a little bit of what got you into the band. Sure. Brian, you want to go first for me? Sure, I'll go. Um, well, for me, I got my start with Queensryche in 87, 88. Uh, a buddy of mine brought home the, a dub cassette copy of Rage for Order. Um, he had seen the band uh, at Lemoore's in New York, and he brought home that record. And, uh, you know, I was a big fan ever since I heard Walk in the Shadows. And, and then from there, you know, just caught fire as the 80s and 90s progressed, and I got a little bit older and uh, just became a hardcore fan from there, traveling around the country to see him live. 
Is Lemore's that famous YouTube clip that we see where Jeff plays guitar? Yes. With his, yeah, his hair, his pompadour, oh, full that, tilt. That was an epic show. Wow. Even <laughs> from somebody's like VHS camera, right way in the back. Famous club, too. Wow. Oh, my. So, well, so wow. James Beach, yeah, how did you get started? Um, well, living in Portland, um, they actually played Queensryche on the radio <laughs> as their first independent EP um, came out. And they played it for every song from the EP, all four songs they actually had in rotation. Wow. Um, so, James, and- I'm, I'm sorry. I need to, I need to ask right now. <laughs> so was that on, like, you, like, did you mean, like, regular rotation? Like, you could be, like, ch- checking out the radio on your lunch break and they would be yeah. playing? Wow. Yeah, that is was, amazing. Um, just between eighth grade and, and starting freshman year, ninth grade in high school, and they started playing that in the summer of – of 83 possibly even a little bit earlier but i definitely remember in the summer and um so as soon as i started hearing that all and they played you know they played other local bands wild dogs was a portland band and rail was pretty popular from seattle there was a metal shop that they had on the on the local stations here um and uh so i ran out and bought the ep pretty early on um and and was a fan of them but unfortunately portland kind of got skipped on some of the shows so i didn't actually get to see him either for bad luck or them just playing canceling on us um a couple few different times so i didn't actually get to see the band until the 90s unfortunately i, I had tickets to see him a couple times and unfortunately they jumped off the bill so uh, one being metallica which ended up being the cult so um, you know, I, I haven't seen them as much times as as my two co-writers who are in the 30-something range, but uh, six times for me currently, twice I saw them with Tate, uh, Promised Land Tour, and then later on in the late 2000s for like a greatest hits kind of thing. Um, and then I've seen them now four times with Todd Latore, the new singer. Um, so, no problem. Uh, yeah, so it's just one of those cases where, you know... I, it was the right place, the right time when they came out. I was a fan of, of you know, I kind of graduated from Kiss and, and Rush and things like that, Van Halen in the 70s to the new wave of British heavy metal that was coming out in the early 80s. And, and of course, that kind of evolved into the U.S. taking off with Def, you know, Def Leppard, Quiet Riot, and a lot of the bands, Rat and Motley Crue and stuuff that were happening. And, and so that was kind of right in my wheelhouse. You know, I loved Iron Maiden by then and Judas Priest and, and, you know, things like that. So it was, here was this band that kind of, wow, they're in our backyard and they can play as well as those guys. So they immediately, you know, people took notice and they got, you know, a lot of attention, especially locally, but, you know, obviously they did well for themselves overall. Yeah. Sure. We we had over the years. We had that feeling in Philly. We had a metal shop mm. on the on the local radio show, and we also had bands like uh, Cinderella in our backyard, yeah, do- doing shows. And even you know, Bon Jovi not that far off, and uh, uh, a lot of activity. Britney Fox and glam metal thing out here. The difference was that metal shop was on Saturday night at right. eleven thirty p.m. <laughs> for like 90 <laughs> minutes so if you wanted to if you wanted to like get the recording of the queen's on your cassette you were like you know you were limited 
And I was one we were, sleepy we were boy more, at church the next day. Yeah. We were a little bit more fortunate in the Northwest is that we had a couple stations in Portland and a couple stations there were up in Seattle as well that, that played hard rock metal stuff all the time. So it, the, although there were metal shop shows in both places, um, you know, there was a lot of it was just becoming popular and, and played. And they also supported a lot of the local acts and played a lot of that um, stuff that was kind of in our backyard. Um, our our fellow co-writer, um, Brian Naren, actually has us both beat in that he was fortunate enough to happen to be a regular of Easy Street Records um, living up in Tacoma, mm. um, which which I've actually went there about five four or five times myself during the eighties to shop. And it was always a really cool store, but Brian actually was there and, and got to be friendly with the owner. And so when Kim Harris was going to, um, to manage the guys, he played the tape for Brian who could not believe it was actually a local band. Wow. <laughs> right, they just right, thought they right. were too polished and sounded too European. And, and this was in the fall of 82. So he wow. knew about it was, you know, before they were even Queens, um, you know, when they were still the mob. So, yeah. and, and uh, you know, so um, that's kind of, and, and as far as, you know, how I, I met Brian in 1990, I've known him that long um, from doing record shows, swap meets in, in the Northwest here. And he was always a guy that had a lot of Queensryche and other Northwest um, bands that he was selling. And, you know, we'd trade stuff and buy and sell stuff from each other and, and you know, got to know each other over the years. So, so we have a relationship that goes back quite a while, um, you know, as well. I, I don't want to skip ahead. These guys, these guys have like these guys are pros. Joe and Ken, they've got questions <laughs> lined up. I, I, I'm, I'm easily distracted, so they're gonna get annoyed at me. But I, I wanted to just ask you a quick question, James, about. And Brian, you may have this experience too. So I, I similarly, it, it was like a curse for, for several years i could not ever manage to get my logistics straight to see queens right so i i actually never saw them until the the um empire tour and and so i saw them twice then and, and i want to say that i saw jeff tate with ken uh at, in philly when he performed operation mind crime so I, but you mentioned you know you've seen the the version the the, the version with todd latoury and and like I've had experience seeing like, you know, bands like like Journey, bands like Sticks, where like, you know, there's like that there's like that one key guy that that isn't there. And even like with Journey, even though it's almost like they cloned Steve Perry, right? There 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 is just that sense like But they could have had Jeff Tate. I know they could have had Jeff Tate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean so that would have been weird, though. I think it would have been really weird, man. It would have been really weird. Tate, so Tate I'm even just curious. That himself, so. <laughs> I, I'm just curious if if you know, like, is is it more nostalgia? Does it feel like a little tribute-ish when you know when they do the classic stuff? Because what what I've seen, you know, on 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 YouTube with Todd Latory, it's so good. But sometimes, you know, I just wonder, like, how do, how do you feel about that when you when you've seen them live? What's the feel like? I, you and I have, I think we have opposite, a little bit of an opposite opinion on that. So why don't you go first and then I'll chime in. After. Sure. Um, I was skeptical about, even though, you know, before the, you know, the party in the ways with Tate happened um, and all the legal stuff and all that, uh, the band was struggling and he wasn't really able to sing 
like he used to. I mean, he still sounds pretty good. He's always had a great, really great baritone, you know, deeper sort of register, but he just, a lot of the higher stuff he's just not able to hit anymore. You know, that, that happens to a lot of the best of them. And, um, and then the kind of the directions he was sort of steering the band to was eventually kind of, you know, going too far away from, I think what the band was really about and what the fans expected. And, I, I found it a breath of fresh air when Todd came in. I, I was skeptical at first, and then I picked up that first record, and the self-titled one, 2012 or 13, <laughs> and I was blown away. And so when I got a chance to see him, I think 2014 was when I first saw him, I was just blown away. And the, the great thing is the, the three records they've done with Todd are all really good. Um, they definitely have yeah. a feel of the older Queensryche, but more modern. Um, I, I really, what people wanted, what, what a lot of us hardcore fans really wanted was them to go back to the metal of the eighties, that progressive metal kind of vibe. And that's why I think has really worked well for the, for the studio recordings. They're all, they're all very solid and live. They're great. If I had my druthers, I'd love to hear them mix it up a little bit and do songs from each of the three albums. They typically just grab two or three from the new release and then do a lot of the greatest hits, but they've been digging pretty deep. I mean, we just saw them recently when we did our book release this last, last October in Snoqualmie and they, they were, they did an amazing version of screaming in digital, which is also one of my favorite songs. Yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. It was just phenomenal. Todd just killed it. He's different. His voice is slightly different. I mean, he had he can definitely hit all that stuff. Yeah. He does have a little bit of a similar timber to Tate that, you know, you can definitely kind of tell he's he sounds a bit like him, but he has a different style. He doesn't quite have like Jeff had opera training and vocal training and his modulation and different things. And I'm sure Brian can speak on this. He's he's very knowledgeable of that as well. But there's just a difference in the style specific and then Todd can also do a lot of like the death metal stuff and things too that Tate would never touch if you've heard any of his solo stuff and that sort of thing he's got a growl yeah he does yeah he can hit the growl so yeah so it's a little different he kind of brings a bit of his own thing definitely so cool well see when when I I first saw Todd the Todd Tory version when they were rising west I was lucky enough to see both those shows at the Hard Rock Cafe when before Queensryche and Tate had parted ways and it was just billed as Rising West. And uh, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe what I heard those first two nights and how clean and powerful Todd's voice sounded. It, it really sounded like you stepped back into 1986. It was it was crazy. Um, and that's what kind of set off the firestorm and ultimately led the band to, to make some of the decisions that they did, the, the reaction from those two shows. Right. Um, for me... You know, I, I really enjoy the studio records with Todd. Um, I think that they've progressively gotten better. Um, I like the verdict a lot, but I think it has gravitated away from what I think people consider the traditional Queensryche sound and has gone a more metal, a more heavier edge direction as time has gone on. And I think that fits Todd's voice better, to be honest. He's not a clean singer. He can sing that way. Uh, and he did early on. But but he likes a little bit of rasp in his voice. And mm-hmm. I think he's got more in common with a guy like Dickinson or even early Anselmo uh, than he does with Tate. And, and I think as time goes on, those changes, you're seeing them in the live show. And um, I, I forget, you know, talking about 
uh, it was mentioned something along the line, does it feel like a tribute act seeing them or, or something along those lines? I don't necessarily think so. I think they're still really tight live and they're really good, but it's definitely different. And, and let's face it, it's been different since DeGarmo left the band. I mean, things change. Yeah. And, and if you've, I mean, I've seen them 38 times. And I mean, including wow. <laughs> Naren's got me beat by, I think, two. Um, but, uh, you know, so I mean, it's changed over the years. But I mean, it's still good. It still sounds like Queensryche. It's just different. And I, and I think after 40 years, you kind of have to expect that. Whether Dot Tate was still in the band or not, it's going to sound different than it did in their prime. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Cool. I'd, I'd recommend, too, Tate Solo, as, as one of you guys mentioned, going to see him. I saw him once in Portland. I was actually going to do an interview with him and Kelly Gray, and they didn't show up in time enough to do one. But I got it. I got on the guest list and got to go see him for free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it worked out. But they were really good. And from what I've heard recently, he's even. I know he's said that he's worked on his, you know, done a lot of work on his on his vocals in the kind of the COVID time off and that sort of thing. And everything we've been seeing, he sounds really good doing this Rage for Order and. And um, uh, uh, Empire in its entirety. So we're we're looking forward to going seeing him this summer, and we might even do another sort of event around that, like we did this last October around the Queensrÿche guys. We did a little bit of trickery, sort of not really trickery, but we just kind of banked that people would be coming to the show of of Queensrÿche playing this last October. So we really pushed to try to get the book out in time. Um, so we could um, kind of have it for that. And so we rented out a space and, and actually did a big archives thing too, which, which Brian Naren has um, helped curate at different fan clubs, events and different things um, locally in the past. Um, he has a, a very, very big, like the biggest Queensway collection that I'd ever seen until we discovered there was a couple other guys that had more. Um, a couple of our friends even flew in that were big, uh, um, you know, collectors. Uh, wow. Brian flew in for it and, and another guy, Mike, um, who's a huge collector and um, a couple other local friends brought stuff. And so we, we had a display all the way around this conference room of the different eras of Queensryche um, throughout so the years. Cool. and. Wow. All kinds of neat rarities and things. And then we just had a table set up to sign books and kind of talk to everybody. And um, it was a really neat experience. And we actually we went and saw the band play that night. And thanks to my co-writer here, Brian Heaton, who's friends with a couple of the guys in the band, we were able to go meet with them and give them copies of the book, which was really cool. Fantastic. Um, Todd, nice. Yeah, yeah, Todd, yeah. Ed Jackson and um, Casey all came out and we were able to hand them copies and get a couple copies to the mics. Cool. as well so so I, I i was gonna ask if if there were any sort of legal hurdles that had to be but but i guess brian it sounds like you got the you got the inside track so <laughs> no we we didn't really um we we made it an official biography um we we, we reached out to the bands i says you know brian knows a couple of the guys and in i think you know we we don't know why but they didn't respond i think maybe due to the fact that the lawsuit with scott kind of popped up that they might have already had that brewing and just were afraid they might say something they'd get in trouble for you know so you know we we reached out to management and booking agent i interviewed Sullivan big and you know a couple different friends and a couple different family members and so on so we, we had plenty of interviews 
plenty of people, including my co-writer Brian Heaton here, had done interviews with a few of the guys over the years. Um, we were friends with a lot of other people that had done interviews with them as far as journalists and, and different people. Um, so it wasn't that tough to get permission to use interviews. You know, we, we, we used only things we got permission for. So we didn't even go with it more like, hey, we couldn't get a hold of you. We everybody that we used stuff from gave us permission and we gave them copies of the book. So that's um, cool. It, you know, and and you know, if they if the guys would have been interested from the band, whichever band members and making it some sort of official, you know, type bio, we would have been fine with that. But in the other hand, you know, people do it all the time, unauthorized things, you know, it just they're they're yeah. a private band. So we we kind of knew that it might be tough to get sort of an official blessing on that and and that was fine i mean we yeah. knew the story and and we were able to tell it in a very positive manner i think and and that, that was, was certainly kinda, one of the things yeah that was kind of my my thought like you know they've always sort of been private you know there yeah. hasn't really been until you know all all the everything hit the fan um <laughs> i think it's great that that um you know there wasn't any kind of uh hubbub about you know, have, having the, you know, unauthorized biography. I think it's, yeah, I think it's no, awesome. I think, I think they, it's cool. they said they hadn't heard about it. So it's possible people just didn't pass things on. It's possible. Like I said, maybe there was yeah. some, with the legal things in the works. They, they just didn't feel like they wanted to, to talk about it. We did hear from one founding member that he got the book and liked it and said he felt we did a good job on it. So, you know, that's gotta feel good they're all yeah and they're all at the at you know at this point in their careers they're all still working musicians so so this can really only help them i think we were just in the long run it's it's a crazy thing we were kind of this actually stems back to a little bit of the history of northwest metalworks with with our first book being rusted metal and this was a huge reference guide that brian naren and i started um back in actually 2014 <laughs> so it took us uh, about five years to write and compile the book and interview almost 100 i think around 100 people we interviewed and um and there's like 600 band bios and uh, uh all you know venues and concert listings and discographies and you know the whole gamut of of northwest hard rock and metal the space of 25 years so it was a fairly a fairly comprehensive thing. I mean, this, of course, people won't see it in the audio interview, but this book is really huge. <laughs> so it's yeah, eight and a wow. half by 11 door stop that weighs almost six pounds. Um, so we, the whole, we started Rusted Metal first before we even started our record label. That kind of spawned out of that, having some friends in bands growing up and they were kind of interested in doing releases. And so, so our record label that, that Brian Aaron and I do is, was kind of an offshoot of shoot of rusted metal. Once we mm -hmm. finally finished rusted metal and this came out in um, the fall of uh, 2020, we'd already been thinking about, you know, and working on um, another book, which became the Queensryche book. We knew we wanted to do band specific band bios as well. That was kind of the, the, the thought, and uh, so we had a couple bands initially in mind that were a bit bigger, um, which we did have in Rusted Metal with bios and, and interviews in mm -hmm. some cases. And, and uh, 
we just knew Queensryche was kind of the biggest metal band of the Northwest. I mean, Heart, arguably, as a hard rock band, is probably a bit bigger or maybe slightly more well-known, I imagine. But but Queensryche is, is up there, definitely. And we just couldn't believe nobody had done a book on these guys, ever, really. I mean, there was one little collector's guide. A guy did a very small run in Europe, but I... <laughs> It's it's there's just a short bio in it, and then the rest of it's just kind of all the releases they had in different different formats from different countries and so on. So it wasn't really a true bio. James, to to support what you're had. saying, um, I was reading Building an Empire, the story of Queensrÿche, just before this interview, and I was upset when my alarm went off. I had to stop reading to come here for this conversation because I was enjoying the hell out of it. And um, I, I, I really did like the book, which is why I reached out to you guys. And then on a second point, in the book, you go out of your way to talk about the Usenet groups and the various forums that replaced it. So, James, you, you said there was no book for Queensryche, and you filled a void, and I'm glad you did that. But there's also the parallel development of the web and this information didn't necessarily die for lack of a book it was just moved to the usenet groups and the websites sure. and the blogs yeah yeah, yeah. Were, were you a big fan of the places where brian was was hanging out on these sites <laughs> um you know that's actually how i knew about brian heaton was uh, both naren and i knew about the the message board and kind of lurked or whatever posted here and there few times back in the day and I've followed um, Brian's anybody listening um, fan website um, for the um, right and that's been band. a good resource yeah 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 and I always enjoyed his articles and different interviews and things he'd post and Brian Aaron and I actually started this book and um, together and we intended on reaching out to um, uh, Mr. Heaton here um, to see if he wanted to write uh, you know, an intro or afterward and, and see if we might be able to use some quotes from some of his interviews and, and, you know, if he wanted to be involved and, and, uh, we, uh, we had a mutual friend, Brett Miller, who we interviewed, um, both for rusted metal and, um, the building the empire book, who was uh, friends growing up with some of the Queens, right guys, um, in, in the Bellevue areas there. And, uh, he had a lot of, and he also had written a lot of stuff that he's contributed to Brian Heaton's um, sites over the years. And, and um, um, Brett's a great friend. He's just been an awesome guy getting to know him over the years now. And, and he was the one who kind of pushed us more right to Brian Heaton specifically, because I, he asked me if we were going to contact him. And I said, yeah, yeah, I definitely want to. And he's like, here he is. I introduced him. <laughs> so there yeah, you yeah, go. Yeah. Great. We wanted to talk to him. So, so that really worked out well. And, um, you know, what started out fairly innocently, wonderfully grew into a great three-person partnership for this book because Brian Heaton was just really came on board and he helped us shape the book and he contributed. Um, one of the things we did, as you saw, much like Brian's section on, on Queensryche and the internet, we liked, we wanted to do certain cutaways about interesting, unique things about Queensryche that were kind of like a magazine article where you'd read and you'd have a little cutaway article. That way, you know, we, we, Brian Nairn contributed a couple things like that. And 
Brian, he, the Brian's worked on one on the, on the fan club stuff and that, and the archive stuff. And, um, you know, I had a little cutaway piece on their ESP, you know, signature guitar line and stuff. And oh, cool. so we just kind of wanted to have things that were kind of interesting to, um, you know, what kind of made this band sort of different. Like, wow, they did an early CD-ROM game when nobody was really doing that. That's kind of a, you know, much outdated now, but pretty cool for the time. And you, you'd get through it and you discover there's, hey, there's a hidden song if you solve the game and, uh, you know, beat the game and, and sure, just kind of stuff Landera, like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of neat stuff. And And so we wanted to do different focuses on that, that, we felt the band was kind of pioneering in different ways um, besides being known as a progressive act who, who did you know, yeah, digitally aware who, too. Um, yeah, so, exactly. so yeah, yeah. Brian, when did you become aware of the old guard like James and uh, you know, and how did you get into supporting? Is anybody listening? Well, I mean, I first ran into Brian Naren. Um, we've known one another for 20 years now. I mean, we bumped into each other at a, he did a um, Seattle, fan, uh, he did a Seattle showing of his Queensryche collection in a gigantic conference room in 2001. And I walked down the hotel and all of a sudden I walked into his ballroom as a gigantic collection. And uh, Brian and I met then. And, and we've kind of touched base on and off since then. And then a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, um, James mentioned Brett Miller. Uh, Brett Miller and Krista Garmo were good good buddies in high school. And I've been friends with Brett Miller. My wife and I have been friends with Brett Miller for years. And, you know, Brett and I had dinner, um, oh, God, I don't know now, three and a half years ago, something like that. And he asked me, he goes, hey, have you ever started writing that Queensryche book? And I said, I did. <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> 20, 30 pages of something, something nice to start to the book, and then I shelved it. And, uh, you know, about a year after that dinner, here comes James <laughs> Brian Naren saying, hey, we're thinking about writing this Queensryche book. kind of want to know if you want to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we talked about it for, I don't know, James, what, about a month? We, I went back and forth with you yeah. guys yeah. on how well I, I really wanted to be involved. And then there was this day where I called James up and I said, all right, I'm in. Let's, let's just uh, <laughs> figure out how to do it. Yeah, Brian at first was a little hesitant as far as just his name being on the book. Um, if, if he was just contributing, you know, some interview stuff and, and maybe writing an afterward and we were going to kind of do it that way. And then as it evolved and he ended up being the third man it and, you know, was, you know, instrumental in the book really coming together so quickly. And um, it, it just it's like, dude, you got to be on here. And um the way we did is kind of interesting too. And it's, it's similar to how I worked with um, on rusted metal with three mm -hmm. other guys. Actually, we had, we had a, although it was really only three of us were writers. Our friend James Tolan um, was a huge, a, a guy who grew up in the scene that kind of knows everybody. Everybody likes him. Um, he managed his friend's band and he was inv uh, involved with other ones over the years. And, and um, he's not a writer, but he contributed so much that we put his name on. <laughs> sure. So sure. he helped me interview all kinds of people. He opened the door. To all. So so we ended up, you know, kind of working a similar way where I was the main writer, plotting a lot of the stuff and putting stuff together. And then I had my 
researchers and they were feeding me information and we were putting all this together and then i brought them in to write different pieces so they were you know everybody was kind of contributing stuff we even had a couple outside contributors that guys that were writers in the scene um one of which being brett miller and um who wrote a great um liner notes for a rail reissue of their first album and we ended up kind of um he re reworked that a little bit and we used that but um, rail being the uh the generation older than Queensryche. So, uh, yes, the, the rail was okay. more kind of uh, came up in the seventies and um, they were really influential on a lot of the younger bands like the Queensryche guys. Yeah, in yeah. fact, a couple, if you, if you'll see in the book, a couple of the couple of guitarists actually took lessons from Rick Knotts at one point or another. Right. Uh, yeah. So it was kind well, of Chris a, you know, Mike, everybody yeah. sort of looked up to those guys cause they already had management and they were working on getting a record deal and they played, you know, 30 something dates opening for Van Halen in 1980. And then of course they won the MTV music video awards was kind of their big claim to fame and getting an EMI record contract for their EP that came out in 84. So, um, so that, yeah, it, I think rail was more of a seventies hard rock thing. I always thought of them kind of as a cross between Van Halen and rush. Um, so they were sort of that hard rock seventies. And as the metal thing happened, they sort of got left behind with other bands that were coming out like culprit and Queensryche and wild dogs. And some of these bands that are much more heavier and, and, sure. Yeah. Know, and I say read the book because, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it, it, it's not known how Queensryche actually learned to do what they were doing. And they had a model before them. They had older kids yes. in school, just like we and our Pennsylvania school looked up to the older kids. And just 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 like that. Um, Chris and Mike knew nothing, had guitar teachers. Jeff knew nothing. He had a voice teacher. They, they were kids just like everybody else at some point. Yeah. I mean, they, they competed in battle of the bands. There, yeah. There's such a, there's a, there's a really rich history, you know, Jeff, they saw Jeff, he's a Tacoma guy. Um, he joined a band called Tyrant. They competed in the battle of the bands and almost won. Um, <laughs> interestingly, they lost to a band called Ridge, which was the singer, guitarist and drummer from fifth angel. Um, what became Fifth Angel later on, which is actually where I first met Brian Heaton was at the Seattle Fifth Angel <laughs> reunion before we started. He was the guy that came the furthest from Sacramento. And uh, Ted Pilot, the original singer, and Kendall Bechtel, the guitarist, actually introduced me to Brian here. So you guys couldn't get away from each other. It was, it was <laughs> inevitable. Was, I'd say it was fate or destiny there. Right. So we met each other before we started working on this. So. And, and um, you know, the, the story about, you know, how we broke down the book and how we wrote the book, it, it, I always I found it to be a pretty interesting process because, you know, you have James and I are both really strong writers. I do it for a living still. James does it for a living still. So normally you would have a couple guys like that button heads over certain things, but we didn't. And, and it was really interesting how it developed. I mean, James wrote basically the the main skeleton and most of the narrative um, that you'll read in the book. And then when he handed it over to me, I went through it and I rewrote portions of it and I added detail in there. And we go back and forth on what worked just yeah. to try to smooth out to make sure it was one voice. But it was a lot of fun working with James. And I know he probably pulled his hair out a little bit when he was seeing some of the things I was doing and I was trying to figure out things. But 
you know, at the end of the day, when we looked at everything, <laughs> it made for a better book and it made for a better read. And, um, you know, and, th and that's kind of how I explain it to folks. It's like James wrote, you know, the, the main narrative and I came in and, and rewrote bits and, and added a lot of detail. And Naren, Brian Naren, you know, he, he loves to write and he's getting better. He served as our main researcher. He did. He knows everything. So mm -hmm. things that, that it's just he can pull things out of, out of his pocket that about Queensryche and you like I had no idea about that. He so remembers he everything, everything too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Research. And Brian, Brian. For us. Yeah. Well, you guys They're are delivering images. You guys are <laughs> delivering dates and concert tickets. It seems like everyone. And their brother submitted their T-shirts, concert tickets, photos <laughs> for your book here. I mean, it's pretty good. Well, that, that was one of the things that James was really adamant about. And, and James, I'll let you take over there because you know where I'm leading with this, about sure. making this not just a standard bio. As you read in my bio earlier, I, I edited for about a decade almost a, a horror fiction magazine called Dark Discoveries, which started out as a, you know, mainly fiction and interviews, nonfiction with with you know, fiction writers in the scene and, and artists and so on. And then it evolved into um, kind of a cross between that and like a Fangoria or Rue Moore type of a magazine that had a lot of media, you know, film and TV, which I, I always loved famous monsters and Fangoria and things like that growing up too. That's, that's kind of my other main love is the horror field. And, and um, so we, we had a very visually interesting magazine as it evolved that had a lot of, you know, color and different imagery. And, and I always liked that sort of thing myself. And when we did rusted metal, we ended up with like a couple thousand images in the book. That's part of the reason it's so huge is we really wanted to have that whole, like a coffee table book meets the text sort of book. So you, you kind of have a combination of both and then it just makes it more visually interesting. And we knew there's people that like to look at pictures maybe more than read <laughs> a, okay. a fiction book or something. So you kind of appeal to everybody and we wanted to do something similar. Now there's not that many images in building an empire. There's, I think maybe 300, but, um, but still we wanted to make it pretty interesting and, and um, kind of show, you know, different, uh, pictures of, of how the band evolved by look and different, um, you know, as the albums went on, different styles and things and to have different materials to like, here's the records and here's the, like you said, concert tickets and here's some promo stuff and here's, and it just kind of helped show the experience to illustrate a lot of that stuff. And so that's one of the reasons we wanted to to have it that way so it could be kind of visually because typically you have a lot of these books which i read a ton of non-fiction music bios and books and and typically with a lot of the bios you have like an eight or 16 you know couple eight page sections sections or a 16 page color section of photos and then it's just text the rest of the time which is kind of boring and i always mm -hmm. like stuff that shakes it up a bit more with a lot more imagery imagery through it and you know, as far as the the narrative sort of style, you know, I come from like working a lot in the fiction, horror fiction background, as I said, and um, I've edited some books from some deceased authors that we've kind of put different things together and hmm. I've worked on a few anthologies and things. So I, I worked around fiction a lot. I've edited a lot of it and published a lot of it and worked with other publishers and 
and I also worked on a lot of nonfiction stuff and I read a lot of that stuff. So I specifically kind of, I, I really enjoy, and I want to give a shout out to Martin Popoff, who's an author that's done like 80 something books now or whatever over the years. And he, he does some great band bios, not only some obscure bands that probably nobody else would ever do it. If Martin didn't <laughs> put the book out, a lot of bands, he loves himself, you know, Angel and Max Webster and a lot of these obscure sort of bands um and he does a great job of you know like an album tour cycle you a little some history backstory you can kind of go through the different albums and and there's always great stories around a lot of that stuff and that's pretty much one of my main models with some of his books and other people that have greg prado a few others have done books like that um, um i really like that style because it it's it's you got the information about it but it's not too much, but then you're also kind of experiencing it, how, how it happened okay. and illustrated by different quotes and things from sure. people involved. So two things on that. Um, for, first, we took our Palaver name from Stephen King. So as it is indeed. That's that's Joe Beauclair primarily, but also, Paul, you did you did read the series as well, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the imagery for our podcast is Dark Tower derivative. Um, but, yeah, I but noticed where, that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but where I'm going with this is uh, who titled the chapters. I, I do enjoy uh, the chapters in your book. Um, <laughs> was that you, James? I, I did. I mean, we we there's a couple we changed, but initially, so they're intended to sort of play off of. I, I'm a big title guy. I, a lot of times get inspiration for titles. Sometimes it sticks, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I feel like a strong title that's kind of memorable is really important. It, interestingly enough about the book, just a little factoid, is the actual idea I had at first was Take Hold of the Flame, mm. the story of Queensryche. Sure. Um, one of my favorite songs uh, from the, mm. you know, from the warning, of course, is Take Hold of the Flame. And I like the idea of that because it was kind of trying to catch the brass, you know, catching the brass ring. Like these guys came out of nowhere, they brass ring. And also on the other hand, you get burned by the flames sometimes. But Mr. Heaton here actually came up with a better title and that was building an empire. And we felt that was a lot stronger. Um, and so we ended up changing that just because I think there's various reasons. I think that while my original title might appeal to maybe sort of the older generation that kind of grew up with them more in the sort of metal years of the eighties. Uh, the empire is, you know, their biggest album and kind of most known mm -hmm. overall that and empires or uh, mind crime. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and it also had that sort of double meaning too. Like here's some guys that came from a suburb in outside of C, you know, on the, on the backside of Seattle, basically, and came out of nowhere and kind of took the world by storm and built this sort of empire and, you know, you know, sold millions of records and still is a, a worldwide known and liked band to this day. So I think that also worked quite okay. well as a all right. and, well, and then as far as the chapters, you noticed, I'm sure, that some of the band names were sort of worked into there as slightly a pun sort of play. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, it, yeah. Some are, so, some are worked off of song titles, too, which kind of had a, a sort of a 
an interesting um, alignment with certain events that happened at that time too. Pivoting now to to, to Brian. Br- Brian, we kind of found you through the focused on metal podcast you you did a long interview with richie over there and it was definitely the more controversial style of interview where they wanted to dig up the dirt on queens yeah <laughs> so like, so we, ask, i was wondering if let you me ask you a bunch of questions you have no idea what the answer is so you're gonna have to just give me your opinion <laughs> here's the full disclosure on the focus on metal I, i've known those guys for years um, I, I talk to Richie probably every other week. We or every month we talk on the phone, but we text here and there. And he warned me ahead of time. I'm not going to ask you any of the questions that you think I'm going to ask you about this book. <laughs> and so when he hit me up about you know talking to me generally about Queensrÿche as opposed to helping write the book, uh, it did catch me a little off guard at first. But um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, <laughs> Richie's great. And we have a good time with it. So, well, th- that being said, we do have our own list of questions, and I hope yeah. you'll you'll welcome them. So, so we did go toward towards the more controversial side. We have a fourth member of the podcast who's who's <laughs> doing um, some sound design work tonight. Can't be with us, um, but you know, we wanted to go through that list. And, and I understand, Joe, you have your own questions lined up. I, I do, but I think we've actually already dealt with a bunch of my questions. Now, the while I'm pulling Tom's up. The one sort of fanboy question I have to ask, because it involves one of our favorite stories that we've been telling throughout the podcast long before we ever got to Queensryche, and, and that was the the release of of Operation Mindcrime. So so as as two fans early on, like what what was that like? Did, I mean, do you, do you have any sort of special story around your first experience with mind crime well i know i do i mean for me when i first heard that record i didn't even know what the hell i just heard i, I had to go back and listen to it again you know i mean <laughs> I was, at the time i was what was that 88 so i was like 12 so i mean i was young and so i put that thing on i had no idea what i what i had just heard and it was definitely different than rachel ward mm. um which i had heard the year prior so um, but once I clicked and I started reading the, the lyrics and I realized it was a story, that was it. I mean, it actually was kind of the watershed moment where, you know, my, my other favorite band at the time was uh, Seattle's Fifth Angel. And James mentioned them earlier. Um, they were as soon as I heard Operation Mindcrime, Queensryche went to number one and they, they were pretty much there until, you know, 1999, 2000. So it was uh, a watershed moment for a kid who was about 12, 13 years old at the time. Awesome. Fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> I was a little bit older, but it, it blew me away. I mean, they started playing a couple of the singles on the radio. Um, I love that. <laughs> uh, I just... the silence, maybe. Speak. There was a mm-hmm. couple of them before um, Eyes of the Stranger that were getting some radio play, and I think that was like the third single. Um, but, you know, we heard about it, and you know, I picked that up. I actually wore out two cassette tapes of that record. Um, <laughs> one in my car and then the other one just kind of <laughs> over the space of like a couple years. So I played that over and over and over again. And every friend of mine that liked hard rock and metal, some that even didn't love that record too. And I think people really got into the concept and then the videos taken off. It just got huge. I'd actually weirdly like I was really strong into them with the EP and morning. And then 
I don't know if I didn't go see them with ACDC and Kiss because I didn't really like ACDC and Kiss by then. I mean, I was fully kind of getting into Metallica and Metal Church and Slayer and things like that at the time. The crossover in the mid-80s was pretty big and, and, and Portland as well. And so I was going to see some kind of mixed bill punk metal shows and thrash yeah. stuff. And, and I just... I remember when Rage came out, I just didn't get it. I was like, this is like a pop song or something. And I remember liking some of it, but I just, it was really a grower. Now, honestly, all these years later, that might be my favorite record of theirs. Mm. It's really, give any given day, I I could tell you Operation Mindcrime or Rage for Order. They're just like neck and neck. Nice. So, I mean, Rage was just a landmark album, but I think a lot of people didn't get it at the time. It was just radically different. Well, the songwriting is amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so on the Palaver, we have a rule that you can't have one or two songwriters. You need three. And I've become a big Mike, Michael Wilton fan. I didn't think I would be. But um, in that era, you know, The Warning, Rage, Operation Mindcrime, the real secret ingredient to the Queensryche formula was the fact that Chris would come up with some music, Jeff would come in, and Michael would sprinkle fairy dust on this shit. And, and, and he was kind of like the magic thing. We, we, we equate that with, yes, you could have Steve Howe and John Anderson in a room, but you wanted Chris Squire to walk in the room and sprinkle fairy dust on the material. You know, you always <laughs> wanted three authors to fuck things up. So, you know, <laughs> what, what do you guys think about the, the, the three songwriter formula in Queensryche? Obviously, with the EP, it was, you know, it was Mike and Chris kind of writing most of that. Jeff only wrote lyrics to to um, Lady War Black. And some of the stuff continuing on was obviously more Jeff getting involved with the band after he officially joined them. And those guys really were, I think Milton's a lot was underrated and kind of, overlooked at times we've talked about this a lot between the three of us he obviously had a lot of strong songs too over the years and of course now he's the main guy kind of driving that ed and the other guys stepped up certainly as time went on more and more but mike's always been that riff guy coming up with these great riffs and these different and i think chris maybe more the melody guy because he could sing too and you know, he was the one that's why you really lost that when he left was you had those dual harmonies yep. and a lot of great melody lines and stuff I think was kind of lacking or missing later. But, but I agree. I think, I think he was, you know, it, typically you, it, I think they were kind of the Tipton and Downing and Halford of Queensryche. You had that three, nice. nice, you know, that came up with, came up with all these different great ideas and they were predominantly, the main songwriters and okay, but yeah, Brian, I, I what do you think about that? Got trio. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I definitely, I definitely think in their metal years, from like the EP through through Empire, let's say that Michael was an instrumental, you know, force in Queensrÿche. I mean, he's definitely the more metal riff guy, um, as James mm-hmm. said earlier. I, I think the 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 magic fairy dust um, thing that you're talking about. To be honest with you, I've always thought that's been Chris because I think. If you listen to a lot of the songs that have been credited over the years that say Tate and Michael Wilton, um, and it's just those two, they generally, other than Roads to Madness, which I think is credited to the three of them, not just uh, two, yeah. but, if but if it's Tate and Wilton, it, it's generally a fairly simply structured song. 
Um, it's a major riff. Um, it's usually a song that, that's just really guitar heavy. And then if you've got something with the three of them, all of a sudden then there's a little bit of a couple time changes here and there. Or there's a harmonic that you would, would come out of the blue. They're like, what the hell is that? Um, and that was Chris. And, and I know, you know, for me, I always thought, I, I forget who said it, whether it was you or it was James, said that, that Chris was always like the melody guy. And I kind of agree with that. I mean, he was really great at melody and harmony. And, and I think that's the kind of special sauce that's once Wilton's riffs started to decline, you know, with say like Promised Land and Here in the Now Frontier, you know, you still had a little bit of that magic dust spread over things, but you lost a little bit of the balls of the band. And will <laughs> down. And, all right. Um, all right. Well, yeah. good, good. I, I promised the more controversial question. So, Joe, you're fired up here. I am fired up. <laughs> 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 and, and we start out with one that it, it's a combo question, actually. So I'll, I'll put it out to the uh, to the floor. And, and I'll combine two into one, and and that is what was the most surprising thing and the most disappointing thing that you learned about Queensryche as you were writing this book, assuming it wasn't something you didn't already know. Well, the most surprising thing for me was just how instrumental Kim Harris was in the success of, of the band. I mean, you know, I always knew that Kim Harris was the first manager. Him and his wife, Diana, were the first managers of Queensryche. You know, and as a fan, you listen to that, oh, oh, they managed them. That's great, you know. But if you read the book and you read the details, you'll you'll find that that without Kim Harris, that band probably doesn't get out of Seattle. Um, he, through his connections and in the industry and all the effort that he put forth, you know, it, it's it went above and beyond what a normal manager would do, in my opinion. And um, you know, I, I knew that he was a big part of the early years. I didn't know he was that big of a part. And I won't spoil it for anybody who's listening and wants to check out the book, but, you know, remember that name, Kim Harris, because without him, there's no Queen's right. And Diana, his wife and Diana. at the time. Yep. I, yeah, we, we did. So um, our other co-writer, Brian Aaron, actually talked to um, uh, Diana. Um, Kim has Vaughn passed, Harris. correct. Um, what's that? I'm sorry. Is Kim no longer with us? Kim, Kim passed away a while back. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Brian, Aaron, and I interviewed him. We got a very fortunate chance to sit down and talk to him for like three hours. Um, we later found out from his kind of common law wife, girlfriend, Ardell, who came to our signing. And we were able to meet Brian. Aaron had actually known her for a while and talked to her um, here and there. And she ended up coming down, and which was really nice. Brian made a kind of memorial for Kim, which was really neat with a lot of pictures and things. And she was pretty touched. And um, she said, Kim never did interviews like that. And she said, Brian, you must, he must've really liked you a lot. And so we felt very honored that he, and we, I, this was actually the interview in full in rusted metal with Kim. Um, mm. It's, it's a lengthy interview that we put in there. And of course, in this book, we just use some quotes from it um, throughout the book, but, yeah, him and Diana were very instrumental. I think um, Diana had connections in the industry um, prior to getting together with Kim, with her um, previous husband, 
Um, there was a management group, Bo Arts in Seattle, that managed Stryker and Epicenter and a few other local bands um, that had record deals. And they worked a lot with the concert promoters there and, and so on. And um, so she had some industry connections. She knew Mavis Brody, who had worked at um, a local radio station there. And by the point of time that they were um, uh, manage, going to manage Queensryche, um, she was an A&R for EMI. So she had a lot of connections. Kim had a lot of connections as well. Um, they were, you know, Kim had a, supplied the local radio station with play stuff to play and um, Steve Slayton and those guys at KSW and, and um, KZOC in Seattle. And um, so they kind of had their finger on the pulse and um, they had the vision to see that these guys might be something special. And, um, you know, as the story goes on, you'll kind of see how Kerrang comes into it. And um, that's right. And that's another right. um, interesting thing was um, uh, I was able to find Paul Suter, who um, was the writer for Kerrang that broke those guys initially. Wrote the and, forward in your book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, he's living in L.A. And I connected up with him and he said he'd love to write the forward for us. And so that was really cool. And, and, uh, yeah, don't give nice it away. Make them buy the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's get, what was the most disappointing part of all of this for you guys about Queensryche? For me, it's not the, the most disappointing thing I found out. I, I just think for, for a band that has 40 years in and how big they were, the most disappointing thing that when I, when we were writing this whole thing was just the realization that they've had so many, small opportunities to get big again and take some risks and, and, and try to recapture some of that, that commercial success and, and that they had and, and become a bigger band, just like how Allison Chains came back and they built up with William Duvall again, and now they're really big again. Uh, Queensryche had multiple opportunities to do that. And, and when was, we were writing, it just dawned on me kind of how disappointing that was that, you know, they went the other direction where if they might have made a different choice, um, things might have turned out differently. Um, so for me, that's always been a disappointing thing about, say, the last, you know, 15, 16 years of the band. Um, some of the choices that they made, I, I wish they would have went the other way because it probably would have helped them out more. I got to ask this. Wouldn't it have just been better when Chris DeGarmo left if they just said, okay, Queen's Rex over? <laughs> You know, I, that question's kind of weird. So for me personally, since Queensryche has been tied to a lot of things in my personal life, I met my wife um, because we were both Queensryche fans. So, and we met, we met as DeGarmo was there and we got together after he had left. So personally, <laughs> I think, no, as a, a critical, as a being, thinking at it, crit looking at it critically, if they would have wrapped it up after here in the now frontier, I think that people would have viewed Queensryche a lot differently now than they, than they do. Um, I, I think they would have preserved um, a lot of that heady reputation that they had um, back then. And, um, but you know, I mean, they're a working band. They always have been, so it is what it is, but yeah, I, I do think people would have, would be talking about them in different terms had they wrapped it up in 97 it's an interesting thing because I think maybe it, like Brian said, things would be different. I, I don't, my feeling is if they had folded the band at that point, 
we might not have done the book all these years later. Mm. I, I think it's more interesting that these guys lasted 40 years and survived all of that. Mm. Um, mm. And, and, you know, what's interesting is, you know, when in our discussions, Brian, as, as he mentioned earlier, had, had the, you know, kind of dabbled towards doing a book on this himself. Something Naren and I kind of suspected he probably, in fact, that was one of the things we said, I wonder why Heaton's never done <laughs> And so he he had done it stuff, but that you know with the court stuff it got kind of ugly, and and that was part of the reason that he shelved it at the time. He told us, and I could see why something wouldn't come out then because it was really such a downer that this once great band is going through this ugly stuff, and there was just just kind of embarrassing stuff with the the cabaret stuff, and just oh. <laughs> And so I'm sorry, is, know, is the cabaret associated with which album? Dedicated well, to Chaos. Yeah. Dedicated to Chaos. Okay. And and it which is essentially the worst album. Yeah. Well, Dedicated to Chaos is where they they, they, they agreed that they were gonna incorporate um, contemporary rhythms, dance. It was heavy in drum and bass. They didn't they spent a lot of time in the drum and bass tracks. And it, it sounded like it was going to be revolutionary, but the resulting product was not Queensryche. I mean, it was just yeah, kind of a hip hop I, album, right? I think it was, you know, at the time, even Rock and Field was interviewed and said it was like we were going back and revisiting, you know, this is like a new version of Rage for Order, basically. So something to that effect. Yeah. And when it came out, everybody's like, like a dance record in a lot of ways and i think at the time when it came out i bought it and i sold it and i don't have it i kind of think i might pick it back up again <laughs> but um i just hated it and there's a couple good songs on it but i think if it would have been a jeff tate solo album it probably would have been fine because i kind of like a couple of his solo things um because they're different that's what you if you're going to do if it's too close to your your regular band why not just do it in your own band it the whole Great. purpose of, of a side album is trying different things usually and a solo album i should say and mm -hmm. and no i think it was it their story's interesting in that i think things happen for a reason and like brian said there's certain choices you kind of question along the way but you know, I, I think in the same sense, if they hadn't have gone down so far, you know, because they even during the time after Chris left, there was a couple high points here and there, you know, where they sort of came back. There was a lot of excitement around the sequel to Operation Mindcrime. Well, I've become a Jason Slater fan. So so, so who got to know Jason during that process? Was that you, Brian? So, can you repeat Brian. that? Uh, Jason, Jason Slater, Slater. And, and his involvement. I mean, from my understanding after going through the book is that Jason really filled a void. Once Chris left, you didn't have someone with production skills who could start an album and provide tracks that Jeff could sing over. And oh. the creative seed at that point had become Jason Slater. Yeah. I mean, when Kelly Gray joined the band after Chris left, Kelly filled Chris's role. I mean, just in a different manner, but I mean, you know, Q2K, whether you like it or you dislike it, um, you know, that was Kelly's hands all over that record from songwriting and production, you know, and then they got to Tribe and that's, yeah, they got lost. They tried to bring Chris back and 
they were they lost and it didn't work out. And then yeah, then they found Jason. Um, and full disclosure, Jason was one of my closest friends. Uh, he he was basically part of my family. So and we lost he, Jason. Was it only in the last couple of years? Right. It was about a yeah a year and a few months ago. Uh, so November November twenty twenty. But you know, it, it, yeah, he did feel that fill that role. And and the interesting thing when he came on board was that Jason never thought he was going to have to write the records. He thought he was just coming on board to record the band and mix and produce. That's all he really wanted to do. Um, you know, and from his perspective, he was really disappointed because he didn't yeah. want to write a Queensryche record. Um, he just, he was, he was a big fan. He was a metal guy too. I mean, people look at his back catalog and they see some hip hop and they see some other things. Jason was a metal guy. He used to go to anthrax shows all the time. Um, <laughs> he was a Bay area metal guy. Um, you know, but he did fill that void. And, and I mean, and that was one of the things from mind crime two and then American soldier and dedicated to chaos. Um, Jeff would just pick things out of Jason's reel. Um, you know, we were talking about dedicated to chaos a minute ago, all those Jason songs that he's credited on were things that he wrote in the mid nineties that he just didn't have anything for. And Jeff liked them and pulled them. And then they became a Queens, right thing. Wow. Um, you know, and it's just working. I, I mean, the, the relationship between the Tates and Slater soured as time went on. But, you know, Jason's kind of a little bit of an unsung hero. Everybody who's happy to see Queensryche in the mid 2000s and through the late through, you know, the 2010s. You know, I don't even know if they'd be around had Mind Crime 2 not done as well as it did. Um, you know, that record was 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 paid for two weeks after it was released. Um, and that's unheard of. Um, at least back then. No. So yeah, he, he kind of glued it together, but at the same time, him being that glue, it ended up alienating, it seems, you know, the other guys in the band. So it, it's kind of a, a weird situation. It, Who brought Ronnie James Dio in? That's <laughs> incredible. For the chase. That was crime uh, too. Well, Tate Tate is Tate wanted Dio. Um, and Jason was able to figure out how to get in contact with him and set all that kind of stuff up. Um, incredible incredible yeah didn't i i i want to say what didn't tate wasn't he part of that hearing aid um yes so yeah so at least he had a connection i guess to ronnie james dio um queens guys go back with dio quite a bit and that he took them out first in 83 they played some shows west coast sort of leg and then he took them over to europe with them and the guys always got along with him very well in fact um um, their guitar tech, Dave Morris, ended up jumping over to his band Rough Cut and then eventually going. So he, he lived at Dio's um, castle or wherever he had. I, can't, I think it's kind of a castle that he had in L.A. almost. But um, I was just going to say, when, when you guys asked earlier about one of the things I learned from the book um, uh, was Jason Slater. I mean, I didn't really know back in the, when that stuff was coming out in the 2000s, I was like, who's this guy, Jason Slater? And nobody had really heard of him. They were like, oh, yeah, he was in this band. And, and you know, as I read, and I was learning, to, you know, I learned about him more through Brian Heaton's interviews with him and things prior to this book. But I earned a lot of respect for that guy because I think, like like Brian was saying there, he was definitely an unsung hero. I think the reason that some of that Mind Crime 2 albums is good, uh, there's definitely a couple duffers. 
<laughs> but but uh, you know, I kind of like, I kind of still like that record. I think it's a little long. They could have chopped a couple songs out of there. And it fans been a lot consumed better, but... it like it paid for itself easily. Well, I think with anything, sequels are a lot of times are inferior anyway, and a lot of us knew going went in knowing that. Right. But you wanted to kind of see what they were going to do with the story and. Um, you know, some people think it was a bad idea, and, but obviously it did well for them. And, um, you know, the fact that they performed both albums live was pretty neat. So mm. um, to tell the whole thing. But but I think, Jay, like like Brian said, Jason had the love for metal and for Queensryche, and he was a fan. And so a lot of those guys, you know, Tate and Wilton, those guys were into different stuff by then. By the 2000s, Wilton's side stuff, a lot of that stuff is very Tool, you know, mm. Godsmack, new metal sort of kind of stuff vibe. He was into Pantera and things. And, and his kind of style playing has had changed. And Slater got him back to, like, this is, you know, people want to hear that 80s type of style again, you know, and he pulled him back towards that direction, I think. And, mm. and I think, you know, even... You know, American Soldier, I, it kind of bugged me a little bit when that record came out at the time, just with a lot of the overdub voices and, and talking mm -hmm. stuff kind of bugged me a little bit here and there. But in in recent years, I really appreciate that album a lot. I think it's a very interesting and underrated album in their yeah. catalog. Um, Same. But yeah, I think, I think Slater did a lot with what he could. They were working with smaller budgets. They, they certainly didn't have the big record deals that they had with EMI and Atlantic, you know, a lot of that stuff had kind of, you know, then they're working with sanctuary or, or, um, you know, which folded after a couple records and working with Rhino and, and things like that. So, you know, they didn't quite have, mm -hmm. you know, the, the backing and, and money be, you know, of the, of the, you know, the glory years, as they say. So, so I think they found a guy that, it was probably inexpensive, maybe a little less experienced, but yet came in and did a really great job, I think, with what he had. And, right. you know, prolific, resourceful, determined, and able to work with Jeff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, have thing. <laughs> um, I have to say that, that, um, you know, when, when I first heard that Operation Mindcrime 2 was going to come out, and they got Dio to play Dr. X. It was like a mixed reaction of like, ah, <laughs> oh, that's, that's the perfect person to play Dr. X, Ronnie James Dio. And mixed with, oh, of course it's going to be, you know, Dio playing. Come on. <laughs> like, but, but like, I, I will say this. I don't think until this very moment I ever really like put together like, Ken and I saw Dio on the Sacred Heart tour. I think Accept opened up. And I remember I remember being disappointed getting there, realizing that Vivian Campbell wasn't in the band anymore. It was Craig Goldie, Craig Goldie. on that. Yeah. And um and he was he was fantastic. But you know, the that show was so theatrical. And I don't think I've ever sort of in my mind thought, yes, that 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 sort of theatrical stuff like perfectly translates <laughs> to, to Queensryche from Dio. Like I, it's just, it's, it's just a great, it's just kind of a great, I just had sort of an aha moment uh, of my taking me back to when I was 15. 
So thank Joe, you. Do you I have like that question uh, uh, queued up from Tom. Yeah, I was going to say uh, that this 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 segues perfectly in, into one of Tom's questions, and it I, I believe knowing Tom and knowing what we have done here on our podcast. I believe that this question is actually rooted in the Genesis experience. And that it's around the, he says, there's a profound theatrical side to Queensryche seen and heard throughout their career. Was there ever friction between Jeff and the other band members about the amount of theatrical performance and production put into the albums and various stage shows? Now, you can answer obviously without spoiling the book, but I mean, is is was there ever any indication that there was anything like that? Was there ever a Kilroy was here moment with Queens? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> so yeah. Well, as mentioned, uh, the uh, the cabaret thing was the going too far, probably there with the theatrical sort of thing. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't think there was. I think that was part of what made the band interesting was those progressive and theatrical elements. And Jeff's, Jeff was a fan, despite singing for Tyrant before and Babylon and some of the other bands, Myth, you know, which, which had definite hard rock and metal in all of those, there, he was a fan of more progressive rock stuff. Um, he, you know, he liked Rush, was sort of the common ground. Um, but he was also a fan of, Peter Gabriel era Genesis and, and Peter's solo stuff and, and yes, and things like that. And I think that and Pink Floyd was a big influence on, on both him and Chris and the other guys were fans too. Um, I, you know, in talking with Randy Gain, I did an interview with him um, first for rusted metal, um, which I use some of um, in the Queens book and Randy was in myth was, and of course toured with queen strike um, later on and played in Jeff's solo band later on. Um, myth was a more progressive version of queen strike. They were kind of like dream theater a decade earlier, just to, or to either to be, as Grandy said, either they were behind the times or too far ahead of it, but they, you know, Randy played Hammond and organ and synthesizers and things. And, and, you know, which, by the time Jeff's in Queensryche, there's much more subtle elements of progressive. They kind of was, you know, by the time of warning, they were able to start working in some of that Pink Floyd. Of course, they worked with James Guthrie, the producer that worked with, with Pink Floyd and recorded it at Abbey Road Studios. So you get some extra (laughs) inspiration there. And, um, and then of course you also have Neil Kernan who Brian Heaton interviewed there um, who worked with bands like Kansas as well as Dawkin and Queensryche and other ones. I, I think the progressive stuff worked because it was a little more subtle where they could kind of push the boundaries, but it was still metal enough. People were really not ready for, you know, uh, for that sort of like the dream theater probably would have not been made the impact they did in 92, for example, in 1982. Um, people yeah. weren't really ready for that type of, of fusion of of progressive rock and heavy metal um so queensrike was able you know obviously very pioneering in working a lot of those elements in there and i, and I think it worked for a long time i think jeff was able to be creative and and work with his love of progressive rock find things that he could work with on the heavy metal side of it um and then the other guys could rock hard enough and 
and kind of find common ground. And I think that's why it worked. And, you know, you when know, you see, if I can build on that too, you know, I, I think it boils down to, there's a, there's a line between, you know, drama and melodrama. And, and I, and I yeah. think mm. that Tate and the band always kind of agree. There'd be a line of drama in the band just because there's, that's the type of singer Jeff was, you know, he was a dramatic singer. And it was very successful. We all know how Mindcrime did, and the Empire Tour itself, the tour, was really dramatic. Promised Land, that tour, was incredibly dramatic with, mm -hmm. with some of the stage stuff that they were doing there. Yeah, it was but a lot of fun. you get to that point where you jump the shark a little bit, and, and, and to use the right phrase, <laughs> you know, I, I think that Cabaret Tour you know, was the icing on the cake. I mean, I remember Wilton wearing a hoodie and putting his hoodie down over his head. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's, it. that's what he that's what he did on purpose because he, oh he was embarrassed you know i want to be here you know I, <laughs> so, i mean some of that gets lost so to, to you know to to kind of answer the question too it's just yeah i'm sure the band had to talk to jeff at times throughout the career about what would be that line between the necessary amount of drama to drive home the songs and the stories that they're they're telling and when something's going over over the top, um, you know whether or not you know there's documented stuff about that. I mean, I, I James, I don't remember on off the top of my head. We might have touched on it here and there, but you know, there's got to be conversations in a band like that because you know drama's a part of them, and, and you know they're 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 all pretty intelligent guys. Um, you know, Chris, Chris and Jeff, obviously, Eddie is way more intelligent than his you know fun loving personality let's on um he's actually the he's actually one of the most intelligent guys i've ever met but you wouldn't be able to tell it from all the jokes he cuts all the time he tries <laughs> to keep <laughs> right, so, right. yeah so there, there probably were over the course of the course of their career for sure one last question that we have here and i want to sort of of spread the love around to modern day queensrake as it were and so again this comes from tom and and he asks if you know what what was the decision process around Todd Latore playing drums on the verdict? How did that come about? Do we know? <laughs> well, Todd's a drummer, actually. So yeah. originally he played drums in bands in Florida, and he's quite good, as you probably heard on Verdict. He definitely he definitely held his own. Um, the he started singing a bit later in life, and um, his first real big thing was stepping in for. Um, Midnight, who was the singer for the Florida progressive metal band Crimson Glory after Midnight had passed away. They'd done some reunion stuff. And then, um, and so Todd was able to come in and perform that stuff. And if you guys have heard that stuff, I imagine some of you probably have at least. That's pretty stratospheric. <laughs> I mean, that, especially the second album, Transcendence, that album blew me away back then. I was like, wow. That's amazing. That guy he, can sing like that. And he was kind of a reluctant vocalist. Yes. He yeah. really, which as a vocalist yeah. myself, all I just shake my head and go, what an asshole, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I think Todd just got a natural ability, but yeah. so once he, they, I think that, I mean, it was, of course it's a chance meeting between them at Nam with Mike Wilton and Todd. Um, nothing was really intended on happening like him replacing anybody. They were going to do side, um, some side work together. Uh, Mike was doing some soundtrack stuff, I believe. Yeah. I think, was it Brian? Yeah. 
and they just hit it off, you know. Mm. Yeah. Right. For and our listeners, course- NAM is a vendor showcase. A lot of musical instrument manufacturers yeah. gather. At, oh, they know, Ken. Yeah, they okay. know. Right. They're, all, they're, they're buying guitars <laughs> just like the rest of us. Yep. So I'm the so- only place where you might go and see, you can sit there and Eddie Van Halen's demoing products and George Lynch down the way and yeah. every musician pretty much who's anybody is there. These, I've never personally been. I know friends that have. But. With um, I, with Todd, I, I, you know, I don't know how much exposure you guys have had to him over the years, but you know, the interviews that I've watched and listened to, you know, I mean, not only is he just an, an incredibly accomplished drummer and vocalist, but he seems just like such a sweetheart of a guy. Is um, ha- Has that been your experience with him? Well, Heaton knows him better than I. I didn't actually meet him until okay. um, recently when we were able to hand him the books and we got a chance to talk to, to him and Ed for a while. Brian toured went around with him a little bit, right? On well, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I met Todd at the um, uh, the Hard Rock Cafe shows when they were Rising West, and gotcha. We we became we became friendly. You know, I I'm, I was pretty good friends at the time with with Michael Wilton and Eddie Jackson. I became friends with Todd, and, and you know, I, I had an opportunity to to when the in early 2013 to fly out to the East Coast where I'm from. And uh, they, Queensryche was actually playing my old hometown on Long Island. And so I went nice. to shows on that, that run and hung out with Todd a little bit, got to know him really well and, um, at the time. And, you know, it, he, was a, he, he was a singer who was struggling to feel out how it was to be a, a touring singer, you know, and going through the different areas of the country and dealing with, you know, I don't know if any of you are, are singers. I thought I heard somebody say they were yeah. singers, but... Yeah. If you go from singing in a humid climate to singing in a dry climate, it's going to yeah. kill you until you figure out how to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you yeah. know, he was going through all that, and you know, but he came out and put on some superhuman performances. And, you yeah. know, he just, uh, he really put it all out there. Um, and that's the one thing I'll give Todd, you know, that, that, I, that I definitely respect. It's whatever he has, you're going to get it on that night. He may not be on but he's going to put it all out there. And I, that's the biggest difference. One of the things that not the biggest difference, but it's one of the things I think separates him from, from Jeff a little bit is that Todd is not a dramatic front man. He's a metal front man. Mm. And that's a different presentation for Queensryche. And it's been really interesting how he's developed as a front man over time and, and how distinct he's made himself kind of from Tate. And I know I'm going away from the question, but it, it, it's just struck me over the last, you know, 10 years, how he's gone from in the beginning, trying to emulate some of that dramatic stuff that Tate would do to just saying, fuck it, I'm a metal singer and I'm going to show it. And, and yeah. you know, I, I really kind of respect that. And, uh, you know, he, he's uh, he's been good for Queensryche and, and I wish him the best. I think he gets the festival circuit. I, I think he knows how to bring in folks that aren't necessarily there for Queensryche and give them a good fucking time. Yeah. It is and, always fun when in, in the middle of like, you know, when he just like lets out a growl. It's like, yeah. The, <laughs> it's kind of fun. Like Queen of the Reich, he throws yeah. in that roar. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he was cool when we met him backstage. He seems like 
a fairly genuine person. Like he just kind of easygoing guy with a pretty funny sense of humor. Um, just kind of didn't take any BS yeah. kind of stuff. I, I've watched him on various things. He's a guest on Metal Voice and some different shows and things from time to time. And I've enjoyed seeing him on there. And yeah, like Brian said, I think he's been good for the band. I think without somebody who could sing that stuff, who has an, uh, a good front man you know, presence and can kind of carry the thing. I don't think they would have continued. I think yeah. they it would take on and if they couldn't find the right replacement, it was probably done. And now he's managed to help this band not only extend their life, but creatively they're going in and making good records, mm. really good records. And yeah, like Brian said, they're kind of different, you know, but, but I like that about it. I kind of like Fate's Morning to evolve as a band. I like Dream Theater to like to have, bands that I like evolve, but still do good stuff. You know, I was a huge, Ru I'm a, a huge Rush fan, but there's some albums kind of late eighties, early nineties, not a huge fan of when they went really poppy and stuff. Oh. It just wasn't, uh -oh. you know, I love that uh. stuff like hemispheres that could that could be another hour conversation <laughs> if we start talking about that. i'm sure you guys are going to probably touch on them at some point too but, um but you know i mean they did they you know bands that don't stray too far like you yeah. like them to do challenging different interesting stuff to make solid records but in the same sense do you really want them to do something completely different yeah. those that we've seen do that tend to fail like celtic frost or Crimson Glory, for example, on their third record. Good record. Not really what the first two were. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and, and it's it's yeah. it's interesting to me because I'm guilty of this, right? You know, when all the when all the everything hit the fan and like there was the divide and there were two Queens Rikes for a while. <laughs> I was just like, you know, I, I you know, again, vocalist, I just I attached myself to the 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 Queensryche version that had the the lead singer in it, right? And 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 probably I was unfair for a while, a long time to the idea of a new Queensryche with a new singer and and you know, and I find myself only in, you know, probably the last year where, you know, finally I've been able to like, you know, open my mind enough to, to say, okay, like this guy has a new energy that he's bringing to the band and, and they're, they're, you know, in a way returning to some of their roots and, and, um, and, and starting to, to <laughs> respect and like the things that's going on. And that's kind of tied back to my other question. Like, is it good that they were able to use the Queensryche name and, and put those out there, you know, or, you know, would they have been served better if they had just been a a, a a different band? Who cares, really, at this point? But you know, it's just it's one of those things that over time, it you know, I've I've definitely you know come around and and um, sure, yeah. Well, I think if you any with all these with all these lawsuits and between different band members of different bigger name bands, you know, legacy bands, whatever you want to call them. The, the name has value and mm -hmm. you know if they're going to do you know it, there's a telling thing in the book that the booking agent i interviewed <laughs> sullivan with mike mike wilton's talking to him at, at the with, during the point of the rising west you know like what if we lose and we or what if we just kept the you know rising west name and he goes you guys would starve 
<laughs> and he said, you're, you're starting all over again. And which uh, you sort of are with a new yeah. singer anyway, because you've got to yeah. win people over, which is, and they, and they did, you know, yeah. Bray White had to win people over rat, whoever, you know, that tries to do this sort of thing. Some are more successful than others, but you know, I, I, it's it's hard to say because if there's core founding members that were a huge part, integral part of the sound that are still in the band, and then you bring in other players, um, you know, how far can you continue? In fact, funny enough, there was a, a podcast of uh, Martin Popoff and a couple other guys were doing about, or it might have been Pete Pardo from Sea of Tranquility yeah. and Martin doing something, but they were about sure. what bands could continue on forever. And Queensryche was one of the ones they talked about. They're nice. like, it could be one guy now and Todd's doing great. And pretty soon he's in there, you know, two decades and, you know, sort of this continual thing. Whereas I think, I don't know that would work if a certain member leaves. So you kind of have yeah. to have that. So like if Wilton leaves, maybe it doesn't work, you know, Ed leaves, maybe it still works. I don't know. Yeah, you know, it, depending on who comes in. Um, yeah, and, you know, and you, you know, the interesting thing is that, and in, in, you know, and Brian, I'm not sure if you wanted to, you wanted to say something in there too, but, but like, I, you know, Queensrÿche has continued to put out new albums that I think are modern and relevant. Where I don't, I, I think, as far as I can tell, I mean, I'm not, I maybe I'm not as deeply connected, but. I don't know that Jeff has had Jeff Tate's put out recent solo efforts. He's just seems to be touring on the, the, his namesake. Yeah. I, I, that was James's point before about, you know, what, what um, Sullivan Biggs said, you know, to Michael Wilton, if they, if they ended up losing and they had to stay as rising West and he says, well, you'd starve. Well, I mean, that's the reality that Tate was kind of facing. If you think about it. Um, because they made the settlement and Tate could use the Queensryche name for a couple last shows and then he was on his own, you know? And I saw Tate, I want to say it was, um, I'm trying to remember now. It was the tour before he did Mind Crime again. It was an acoustic tour. It was the Queensryche Hits and Rarities. Mm. And I saw him at a bar, <laughs> Sacramento, California, and I was one of 28 people because I counted. That was <laughs> Wow. And I was it was a it was a great show. It actually brought me back to wanting to listen to to Tate again. He he mm. performed like he was playing in front of, you know, 3500. I mean, it, it was a great show. And slowly but surely, he sort of he's built himself back up again. And it's taken a while. I mean, his his records he did underneath the Operation Mindcrime name, to be honest with you, I think using Operation Mindcrime as a band name hurt him. Um, I don't think I think it backfired. To be honest, um, you know, I mean, because it just seems like, well, why do you, it's like a cover band name? Why are you using that? Right. You know, I, I. But there are things that he's been involved in lately, like Aventasia, which is the metal opera project with Tob yeah. uh, Tobias Sammet, I think his name is. Yep. yep. Jeff's put some incredible performances down there, and yeah. all of a sudden, you're watching these Empire Rage for Order shows. And the crowds, they're starting to get almost to the size that current Queensryche is playing to. Almost, not quite. There are still some really small shows, but you're seeing it develop. You know, I don't know if people want to hear any new music from Tate. I, I don't know. Maybe they do. But if Tate can keep on going out there 
and beating Queensryche to these anniversary album anniversary punches, which he's been doing. Yeah. You know, uh, he's building a career for himself and he's singing better than he has in the last 10, 12 years. Yeah. The songs are lowered. So what, you know, I mean, yeah. if you're a singer, you know, those songs are dropped at least a half step. Yeah. So it's a little easier for him to, to hit some of that stuff, but who cares? He's still building up an audience again, which says something, you know, but it's taken him how many years now coming up on 10 years to kind of get to this point. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I don't know if people are interested in new music, but they're sure starting to come out to see him again. So Sweet Oblivion, I want to give a shout out. If you want to hear the best Jeff Tate solo records, those two Sweet Oblivion albums that Frontiers put out. So they're, they're okay. um, musician projects, things of um, different writers and players on each record with Tate as kind of the, the selling point, I guess, if you want to, for lack yeah. of a better... Um, it's, the the second one's really good too. The first one's I, phenomenal. I mean, it's it's like you would want for like a Queensrÿche reunion, basically, with some mm. extra keyboards and stuff thrown in there <laughs> that are pretty great. So cool. it's it's really cool prog metal stuff, um, but very accessible. It's the guys that were kind of the main songwriters. So he basically just kind of does his vocals for but i like it better than the operation mind crime stuff hmm, and his, his kings and thieves solo okay. i think that some of that stuff tries too hard to kind of go into queen's right realm but the sweet oblivion stuff is is pretty much right in that realm like at maybe accidentally it's like hey jeff do you want to do these projects and and they're really quite good hmm. and like brian said i think that's kind of elevated there's they've gotten he's gotten a lot of like props for that stuff and they have Antasia stuff Tobias has has done a great job with with you know that's a always you know album projects with all different singers that they have and Tate's now going to be I think this is his third one he's going to be on fourth one maybe and he usually sings about like three you know three songs and there's like a kind of a group one or something type of thing but um yeah in fact I think there was a phenomenal performance on on moon glow that he does you know we've talked about it kind of i think you know queen's kind of doing the greatest hits things with some of the new material and they typically play about an hour and a half this last time we we're kind of blown away that they did a couple more songs but I, they were the only band on the bill and it was kind of a of a little bit you know about half as many people with covid and everybody having to sit in seats and stuff but but um Tate's playing the whole records, which I think, you know, we've yeah. kind of talked about it. We kind of think Queen's Rex maybe dropping the ball. <laughs> like, you know, come on, you could do the whole promised land. You could do the whole Todd oh, yeah. loves the warning. That's his favorite record. He's, he said that right. a few times. Yeah. Why not I do, that? Hear him yeah. do that whole record? Come on right now. I'm, I'll buy a ticket for uh, sure. I'll go to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh man. All right. My, my theme for this interview is, just get the book, read the book. Um, it's impossible for us to cover it all in this interview. And there are some good stories on the way out. Can you guys tell the story of the guy who showed up to meet the band with a Rubbermaid container full of bootlegs? <laughs> That's a narrow story. Was that Brian Naren's friend? Wasn't it Naren's friend? I think so, yeah. I it's think it. so, yeah. That's a, uh, a buddy of his. Brian, 
I can try if you want. Um, well, yeah, you got to play Scott's drum set, actually, yeah. which was kind of cool. So Yeah, well, it's in the book. Yeah, yeah. One of Aaron's friends, you know, he, he went backstage, got to play Scott's drum set, set uh, sat in with the band, and I think he played first couple minutes of Eyes of a Stranger and Soundcheck before Tate gave the cut sign and, and said, hey, that's enough. Um, but yeah, he brought along this whole collection of bootleg recordings for the band, and apparently the band dove in and like gobbled everything up on him. So it made the guy's day, you know? It's pretty funny. That's one of the things that we were very, we we wanted to include was was fans of the band too, yeah. um, you know collectors and and different super fans and people that had some cool experiences over the years and you know friends of ours and friends of the band and different people just so we kind of got different perspectives so it wasn't just you know here's interviews with band members you know kind of get the whole gamut of of people you know that were in the band's orbit around the years kind of thing. And there was some cool stuff, you know, and, and, you know, there's an interesting thing too, is that, you know, even though there's some, some drama and, you know, some maybe darker times for the band and this, this and that, I think, I think it's interesting to see that everybody, nobody's black or white. Like even, you know, there's been some vilification of, of Tate and his wife. And yet Susan was probably the best fan club manager many people have said that to us that you know brian nair has always said that she really took care of the fans um you know and and different people you know there was stuff kind of thrown at at kim and diana of you know oh they ripped off the band and this kind of stuff or whatever and i think it's nice to shed a lot of light on that and kind of see you know what people went through and you know how you know yeah, there was maybe a bit of nepotism in the band later on, but th also that sort of kept the band going because like Susan was getting gigs for these guys and getting them paid and stuff and taking care of business. So so you kind of see everything with, with you know, people, and that's what we wanted to shed the light on and, and you know, kind of show the arc of this band that like they started, you know, again in this little small suburb and shot out to the rest of the world and, you know, had a huge, you know, popularity point and kind of that went down as the scene kind of changed and, you know, changes happened in the band and, you know, turned around and survived all that, you know, and like, like Brian Heaton said, they're Tate's doing fine. He's, you know, he's back up to kind of getting really good crowds again and doing some interesting new music and Queensryche's doing interesting music and, you know, I don't know if we'll ever see a reunion. That's maybe my one regret or dark thing about the book is I, my gut feeling says it may never happen with the original five members. But, you know, I guess we'll see. Uh, at least Chris put out something with his daughter recently. He's musical. At least he's hey. playing something. So. Yeah, he, he had a project called The Rue with his daughter. And uh, it was an acoustic singer-songwriter thing that they've been doing just for years together and they've played a couple local gigs in the Seattle area, you know, unannounced. I know one of the, the biggest unannounced one was probably they got together and opened for Alice in Chains on the last yeah. show of their, their tour for Rainier Fog um, mm -hmm. a couple of years back. And that was completely surprised. They weren't listed on the bill at all. Um, and they just started playing. And uh, I had a friend of mine that was there was like, you won't believe who's standing in front of me. It's DeGarmo and his daughter, you know? So it, was, it, was pretty, it was pretty 
he keeps it kind of low profile with that sort of family stuff. But if you listen to that stuff and you look it up, it's called The Rue, and you listen to that acoustic guitar, it's that acoustic guitar you remember from Promised Land and, and Silent Lucidity. You know it's him instantly. And, you know, he's, um, you know, I mean, you know, DeGarmo's probably got a ton of music stored up somewhere. Um, hopefully one day we'll, we'll hear some of it. Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. even just a solo album would be great. So long term, sometimes we fly to odd locations and do things. So if you had to anticipate, when would be the next fan convention? I don't think well, there'd be... We- I don't know. I mean, James, you want to take this one? Or you want to, want me to do it? I don't. I don't think it'll be that. But we've tried to start our own little thing again. As as I said <laughs> earlier, we uh, we put on a ranking archives, brought that back, and and some fan club members came out to it and stuff. It was pretty cool. We we've done a couple of we did a couple of Northwest Metal Fest that we brought back with Brett Miller's blessing, who who was the guy who originally did those back in the eighties and of which the mob actually played one of those was their mm-hmm. first, their first gig with Jeff performing with them doing covers. So kind of a significant thing. And uh, we did a, a Northwest archives for like all kind of different shirts and promo items and music and, you know, all kinds of kind of museum type stuff um, like we did with the Queensryche one, except for all different Northwest bands. And they used to have more of that at the experience Muse. Um, Paul Allen's museum there in Seattle. It's Mopop now is what it's called, but they, they had a really cool Northwest metal, um, which is where Queensryche played in 99. It's a dedication of that, uh, which we were fortunate to have some pictures in the book from that. Um, and uh, they took a lot of that stuff out of there. Unfortunately <laughs> All right. got replaced with other things from the grunge era and so on. But Yeah. So, but yeah, we're always kind of looking for more options. We did want to do something in California, definitely too, um, with our co-writer that lives down there here. Well, so. you have to keep us posted on uh, on that, Brian. Sure, you, yeah, of, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Th- thanks for coming along. You know, this is a podcast. We we we've talked about the Genesis catalog, the Yes catalog, and I realize it's only in our small circle, but there are times where we put you know, the first three albums on the same level as the early Genesis catalog or, or, or some of the yes, just because yeah. for us personally, it just resonated with us that much. And, and I, I, I don't know that, um, that, that <laughs> I'm going to get hate mail from the, uh, from the prog heads, but come on. I mean, if, <laughs> if you really expose yourself to those, the, you know, the warning rage and mind crime, there, there's some fantastic storytelling, some fantastic concepts, artificial yeah. intelligence, the computer and age, it's totally politics. It's, it's all there. It's, that is totally prog. And yeah. just because the definition of prog music has changed over the last 30 years, it doesn't mean that it's not prog. I, I would even argue that Alice in Chains sometimes can be considered prog. Um, and I can make a pretty strong argument on that one. But you know, those albums are classics. They're classic metal records. They have prog tendencies to them. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I put them up there with some of the best Rush records, some of the best Genesis records for sure. Absolutely. So I think – uh, oh, sorry, sorry. I was just going to say I think there's uh, a lot of us that are fairly diverse, as you guys probably are too, obviously. I, I love prog rock too. I love jazz fusion. I love metal. I love punk. I mean, it's just – I, especially progressive, I 
grew up hearing some of that stuff on the radio and things with older brothers of friends that had some of that earlier stuff, but I didn't really get into it till like kind of the late eighties, pretty much as a lot of the metal was kind of progressive stuff was coming out with Fates Warning and, and Warlord and Queensryche and a lot of these bands that kind of came after the Dio era Sabbath and Rainbow and, and Iron Maiden and things that Judas Priest that kind of had progressive elements. And I really got into the prog stuff as the 90s went on, where Magna Carta was coming out with all kinds of great bands and, and Dream Theater and, you know, Shadow Gallery. All these bands, great bands were coming out. And, you know, I delved back. Yeah, I delved back hugely into a lot of the prog stuff. I'm very similar to Pete on Sea of Tranquility that I mentioned earlier. He's kind of the same, a little bit older than me by a couple of years, but same sort of progression with his music journey, it sounds like. And, um, you know, I love old Genesis and with Peter Gabriel and Yes and King Crimson and you know, ELP and Jethro Tull and all that stuff. And many, many others and, you know, Budgie and just all kinds of Uriah Heap, a lot of great bands nice. from back then. And I think those were a lot of the foundation. I mean, those guys, Queensryche and Fates Warning, some of these guys took Iron Maiden and Priest, Dior, Sabbath and Rainbow and things like that and fused them with that older music and mm-hmm. they created a new genre. And, you know, they're the, thus progressive metal. And, you know, it's it's pretty amazing what they did then and how obviously those records still hold up. And, you know, Mind Crimes pretty much on everybody's top 10 metal mm-hmm. albums of all times. You know, anything I've ever seen or, you know, most people would rank that up there pretty high. And Rage, not far behind it usually. So it's... Throughout our discussion... I've gone onto the website and I've ordered both both the book, the um, Building an Empire, and the Rusted Metal. Um, cool, thank you. So, I, so I, I will, maybe you could. I don't know if this is the part of the show that we've come to, but you know, we can always uh, you know slice it and dice it, as they say. Um, <laughs> can tell us a little bit where folks can can purchase the books, and and also tell us a little bit more about some of the other delectables that are available. Um, on the Northwest Metalworks site. Well, it's it's Northwest Metalworks W O R X Music dot com is our website. Because um, there is there is actually there is actually like a Northwest Metal Company that makes like re, like real metal like metal products. There, there's a similar steel. yeah. That's <laughs> we had a. There is a company that does metal fabrication called there you go. Metal yeah. Northwest Metalworks, but it's spelled differently. But yeah, so we kind of riffed off of that and the old metal sort of spelling. But um, we, we've done, like I said earlier, we've done eight records, or I, I should say that you said in the in reading the bio for me, um, Brian, Naren, and I have done uh, um, uh, eight records at this point. Um, we've done heir apparent's two albums um reissued the first one um graceful inheritance which actually sold out a while back um which kind of which was their first u.s release it was originally an import um we recently put out their second record in kind of a restored um remastered version where um there was it was originally on capital metal blade back in the day and there was some fallout with the band and they kind of replaced some songs and and 
kind of overdubbed a lot more keyboards over the guitars. So, oh. so the, the, it was kind of remastered back to the original songs that were all originals that were supposed to be in the record and how the guitar pulled more up into the mix and so on to kind of make it what it was supposed to be. And, and um, we've also done a couple Oregon bands. Uh, Cruella was a metal band. Uh, I was friends with a couple of the guys in the band and saw them play a few times back in the day. They were kind of a, uh, early Metallica metal church sort of vibe to their thing. I could kind of sing a lot like Dave Wayne, high register stuff and um, nominally in sort of the speed thrash metal. We, we had the other band is a 70s band, Whiskey Stick, that was very Deep Purple influenced, hmm. um, was on a couple comps, uh, had some major label interest, but it, it ended up kind of not happening. And they had a home studio, recorded a whole bunch of original material. And so we put out a a record of their stuff all unreleased, uh, did a reissue of Seattle's Overlord, which was kind of an early crossover, kind of pre-grunge band, kind of a punky singer with with a hard rock metal sound to it. Um, we expanded their EP. We got a couple compilations. We did a, a unreleased album uh, from TKO that got shelved when their major label folded um, in, in 79. And then we've got a couple other bands um, uh, Slaughterhouse Five was a Seattle band, and also Mistrust, which featured um, Jeff Larue from Culprit, a couple of the guys from My Sister's Machine, and a couple of guys from Rottweiler. And they had a record. It just unfortunately the distribution was lost, and it just never really got out too much. And so we're reissuing that one. So it's it's all primarily '80s stuff, a little bit of '70s bands, um, and all so far all Oregon, Washington. Although we've kind of been looking at a couple Idaho bands, a couple Vancouver, BC bands too, as some potential releases. And we've got uh, so that's what we've got. We tend to carry a few cool. other labels on our site that um, are friends that are doing similar things to what we're doing with some Northwest bands. So. You know, a couple of different things have come out with Culprit and Max Planck and Kill Decor and a whole bunch of different Seattle bands and things. Um, Gargoyles, some guys I saw back in the in the eighties that was kind of Portland's answer to Queens It was a, a a big favorite band of mine. I the, another label reissued and expanded their loan album, and I uh, they, they were kind enough to ask me to write the liner notes for it. That was pretty cool. And, so yeah, we just we're just kind of celebrating the Northwest hard rock and metal stuff, and the book line is is an extension of that too. Uh, we got a couple other books we're kind of starting to dabble around towards. Nothing nothing to the announcement point yet. We're going to kind of see where they go as far as as band cooperation and so on. But but yeah, I think I think the people will be interested in it definitely. So outstanding, yeah. So definitely look forward to. Uh, you know, to seeing, you know, what's next and, and what comes out. And yeah, I definitely think it would be fun if at some point we, uh, we connect up somewhere around yeah. Queensryche, somewhere in the country, who knows where preferably the, California, <laughs> preferably California. Absolutely. It might happen. So, um, at this point I will, I will thank, uh, both Brian and James for all your time here this evening. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's been, just a, a really exhilarating sort of interesting conversation. So definitely appreciate your time. It's great to, uh, you know, to, to talk Queensryche with, with a couple of, of new friends of the Palaver. And uh, like I said, look forward to what you guys have coming next. 
thanks for having us i'm gonna definitely look forward to hearing some more of your shows too i've listened to some already and um you guys got some pretty cool stuff i like how you're kind of doing it over space of a few episodes is kind of neat to really spend some time exploring the bands that's pretty cool definitely so well excellent thank you all right so um until next time gentlemen have yourselves a great evening you thanks too, guys man. take care take care now excellent thanks guys thanks guys We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, or questions. Have you read Building an Empire? What are your thoughts on Queensryche? You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at Progpala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.